seated. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 32. That's the text on which this morning's uh, scripture teaching is going to be based. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, then there's one that's on the rack in front of you, and you can find uh, Mark chapter 9 on page 1,000. 1,000. That's pretty cool, isn't it? 1,000. So turn there now. What we've been doing, we started, Kevin started us last week um, uh, during this uh, winter season, January and February, is looking at this middle section of Mark's gospel, which tells the story, as the Apostle Peter, most likely related to Mark, tells the story of Jesus' ministry as he began to journey on his way to Jerusalem and his ultimate death and, and crucifixion. So this morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9. Uh, starting at verse 14. Listen as I read God's Word. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed, and violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. This is God's Word. Now, in, this, in, in, in what I just read, in, in this passage, in verse 24, we have one of the most important verses when it comes to understanding the Christian faith specifically what it means to have Christian faith, what Christian belief is, what it looks like. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. It's also one of the most curious kind of statements, isn't it? Almost paradoxical. What does that mean? I believe, but help me, um, help me overcome my unbelief. Right? What, is, what is belief? What is doubt? I don't know if any of you listen to the, the TED Radio Hour. It's a broadcast from National Public Radio. Um, but it's also a podcast, so you can download it and listen to it, whatever you want. That's typically, typically what I do. And, and the reason why I find the, the program so interesting is in, in the program, what they do is they, they take a particular topic, 
And then they play excerpts of talks that have been given by four or five people on that topic, and then they interview them as they, as they go. And it's not done from a Christian perspective, which is actually why I enjoy listening to it, because a lot of the topics that they choose to actually are pretty interesting topics from a Christian perspective, right? Happiness. What is happiness? The meaning of work. What's the meaning of work? Things like that. But they're, not, but, they're, but they're not looking at them from explicitly a, a Christian point of view. Well, a couple weeks ago, they rebroadcast a program that had been done in 2013 called Believers and Doubters. And, and, in, and in this program, it was, it was fascinating to, to listen to the variety of the speakers as they talked about the topic of belief and what that, and what that meant. And what it demonstrated is maybe what you would have, would have thought. What it demonstrated is that everyone believes something. Everyone, even, even the atheists who claim they don't have a belief, they believe something. And that's what they, so they interviewed these people. One of them, for example, describes her journey from her Roman Catholic upbringing to, to realizing one day in her words that I just, I just don't believe anymore. But when she was pressed by the interviewer, like, okay, you don't like that word belief, you know, but do you find, is there anything, anything you have confidence in? She said, oh, sure, I have confidence in things. Okay. What do you have confidence in? I have confidence in things like the, the scientific method in family, in, in, in relations, and she believes. Or, or there's another, another woman that, that, that they talked to. She comes from a Jewish background, but now considers an ag- herself an agnostic. She says, I'm a very, very firm agnostic, which means, she says, not that I'm faithless. In other words, I'm an agnostic, but it doesn't mean I don't believe. It means I put my faith in inquiry. Okay. She, she, she puts her faith in, 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 in the exploration of, of, of things, in, in, in science, and and those kinds of things. So she, she too, she, she believes. And so without, I mean, so without commenting any further on, on those specific individuals, we can dismiss right from the outset sort of the, the thought that there is any such thing as universal unbelief. There isn't. Everybody believes something. Everybody puts their confidence in, in something. It's also equally true that what they believe don't always agree. Right? When people, people believe in things, but they, don't, they often contradict each other. So the question then it comes, how do you know then? How do you know what's true? How do you know what, what, whether what you're believing is true or, or not? Now, there are a number of ways to do that, and it's a huge philosophical question, of course. But, but one of the ways, one of the classic ways, is, is right here in, in front of us in this passage. Right? And, that's, and that's the valley. The valley. Now, what do I mean? In Mark, in, in, in Mark 9, in, in verse 14, it says, we read, that when they came to the other disciples, now who are they? It's Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they were coming to the other disciples. Where were they coming from? They were coming from the mount, from the Mount of Transfiguration. We looked at that, at that last week. That's what Kevin talked about. It was where Jesus appeared to three of his, three of his disciples in his glorified form. In this, in this state of absolute glory. It was so great that Peter didn't want to leave. Remember, he wanted to build little structures and said, let's just stay here. This would be, this would be awesome. But now, but now where do they come to? The valley. And that's a reality check, right? Because what do they find there? What do they walk into? Political posturing, religious disputes, needy disciples, <laughs> demonic warfare, suffering children, desperate fathers, Right? Review the situation for a second. Right? There's a boy here, a young man, who's possessed by a demon. Jesus wasn't around, but his father had heard about what Jesus had been doing, so he brings his son to the disciples, but the disciples can't do anything helpful. Now, meanwhile, the religious leaders are there, and they're arguing with the disciples, maybe with the father too, 
And Jesus comes into the midst of this chaos and needs to rebuke, it seems, just about everybody. It's enough to make you want to just go right back up the mountain. But you can't. Why? Because the valley is reality. <laughs> it's in the valley where we all live. And it's in the valley that belief is tested. See, and, and what we see here are three approaches, three belief systems to the, to, to the valley, two that don't work and then only one that does. Right? The first is the belief system of the teachers of the law. The second is the belief system of the disciples. Those two don't work. And then third is the belief of the father of this child. Right? So the teachers, the disciples, and the father. Now, first, the teachers. These are the teachers of the law. Right? Oftentimes in different Bible translations, they're referred to as, as the scribes. These were the guys in ancient Israel whose job it was to study the law of God, to transcribe it, to make sure that it was preserved, and to write commentaries on it. And they were often hired, because of their expertise, to offer, offer sort of expert witness testimony, interpretations, legal interpretations, about the finer points of the law. So they were called in to decide whether someone or something or something that was going on, whether it conformed to the, to, to the law or not, to, to the official teaching of, of, of Judaism. And most likely, that's why they were here. And most likely, they had been sent by, as a delegation from the Pharisees and the other leaders of the religious establishment in Jerusalem out into the countryside to figure out about what, whether what was going on here with Jesus was legit or not. Right? Here was this guy who was, who was this new, untrained rabbi who was attracting quite, quite a bit of attention, attracting quite a bit of a, of a crowd. So, so they're there, the, these, these, these teachers are there, but Jesus isn't. And when Jesus gets back, he finds the teachers of the law arguing with his disciples. Why? Well, perhaps, probably because his disciples were, they were, they were healing. They, were, they had been driving out, out demons. And here they're attempting to do it again with this, this father's son. And the teachers probably don't think that they have any right to do it, to be healing, to be driving out, out demons. And see, what it comes down to really is the belief system of the, of the teachers. It's what they believe. See, by the, time of, by the time of Jesus, the teachers of the law had, had moved beyond just sort of copyists and sort of keepers of the, of the law of God and actually began to sort of write their own, adding their interpretations and the tradition sort of becoming extra law. Right? And, and, and they, would have, they would add lots of man-made made rules, and, 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 to the, and they would do it to the point where the standards that they now set, they couldn't be met by anyone. And, and, and the idea of someone or someones, in, in this case, acting in roles of healers and, and, and teachers was, was completely repulsive to them unless these people would first meet their standards of, of morality and, 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 and adherence to the law. Now, as the teachers of the law then come into this valley of chaos, specifically the, the chaos of this father and his, and his demon-possessed son, it's fair to say that these teachers are believers, that they have a, they have a belief in something. They, they, have a, they have a belief that answers for them what to do in the midst of the, of the valley. But what's their answer? Religion. Morality. They say, okay, before we do anything else here, we need to be good. Their belief system is to obey the rules and do lots of good things. It's legalistic moralism. But it doesn't work. Right? That's not, that doesn't heal the boy. It doesn't comfort the father. It doesn't lead to, to reconciliation. In fact, you see where it leads. It leads, on the part of the teachers at least, to this moralistic sort of defensiveness. The teachers of the law are there because Jesus and his disciples 
have been having great success in their ministry. And the religious leaders are getting defensive about that. Hey, you can't do that. You haven't passed the right tests. I look at you and the people you associate with. I don't think you're, I don't think you're really good. You can't be doing those things. Now, that's the teachers, but let me ask a question. Is that you? Right? For example, imagine a situation, and then, and then be honest with yourself. Someone comes up to you after church, maybe today, and they, say, and, they, and they tell you, hey, did you hear about George? George just got a big new promotion, and, and he and his family are moving into this big new house uh, around the corner. Did you hear about that? And, and, and what's your response? What's your reaction? Why? Is it, wow, that's so great for George? And for his family, now that's what you'd say, but is that, what you, is that what you think, really? Or do you think to yourself, yeah, but you know, my kids are much better behaved in Sunday school than George's kids are. And I'm pretty sure that's because I've prioritized parenting over my career, other, rather than, in, 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 like George hasn't. Or do you say something like, but you know, I'm much more involved in church. And I'm pretty sure that's because I've taken time that I could have otherwise spent on succeeding in my career, and I've devoted it to the Lord. Or, or do you say something like this? You know, here, here's a good one. Well, I, I, I know I make a lot less money than George, but, but at least I tithe. I sure hope that after all of this and the, the more money that George is making, this convinces him that he should be tithing. Right? Now, do you think those things? Right? For many, it's hard not to, at least to kind of go in that direction. But do you, do you see what's happening when you, when you do that? Now, parenting, serving the Lord, being generous with your, with, with your money, giving God what's owed to him, all those things are good, right? George should be doing them. Maybe he should be doing them better than he is. But if your first instinct, when you hear about the success of others, is to turn, turn back to your own record and review all the things that you do better then you're revealing that your belief system is just like the teachers of the law. See, when your formula for salvation, when your formula for salvation depends on your own works and your own moralism, then you will default in the midst of the valley to comparisons and to protecting your, your record. That's what the teachers of the law were doing. That's how that we're being defensive. And, and whenever we get defensive, whenever we get jealous about the success of others, we reveal that what we really believe is not the grace of God. What we really believe in is our works and our moralism. So that's the belief of the, of the, of the teachers, and it, and it fails. Now, the ones you would expect to do better but fail too, the belief system of the disciples, right? And here we want to be more sympathetic, don't we? I mean, these are the disciples after all. What's wrong with what they believe in the, in the valley? Well, what do we know? We know that the father had brought this, this demon-possessed boy, his son, to the disciples first, and they failed. That's what it says in, in verse 18. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Right? Now, we also know that the disciples were not acting out of turn. They weren't doing, they, by, by trying to, to do healing in this case, they weren't doing something that they shouldn't have have been doing. That happens sometimes, right? The teacher's away and the students all the time saying, I think we can do this. Let's give it a try. But they're really acting out of turn. They're really taking on something that they shouldn't be, be doing. But that's not the case here. Jesus had already sent them out for this, for this kind of thing. Turn back for a second to the middle of Mark chapter 6. And look at, and look at verse 7. 
Right? This is one of the sections we, we skip between, the, between the, the end of the fall sermon series and what we started, we started last week. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Calling the twelve, that's the disciples, calling the, the, the twelve to him, he, that's Jesus, sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. He gave them authority. Now jump down to verse 12. They went out, the disciples went out, and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Right? In other words, Jesus had already given them the authority to do these kinds of things. He had given them the authority. He had given them the teaching. He had told them how to do it. And then they actually went out and did it. So they had the authority. They had the instruction. And they had the experience. They had all of those things. Now, go back to, go back to, to Mark chapter 9. And we see that now it doesn't work. And, of course, Jesus comes to the rescue, heals the boy, and everybody celebrates. But later, after all the fuss dies down, it says the disciples go to Jesus, and, and they say, what went wrong? What happened? Look at verse 28. It says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. In other words, you did everything right except pray. And our first response, if we're honest, is like, okay, I'm sorry. I, I, I mean, I didn't pray, but that's it? Really? I did everything else right? I just forgot to say a prayer, and come on. And, and that, actually, that response in our heart, that actually signals the, the problem. Right? Because what prayer signifies, what Jesus is talking about here, what prayer signifies is complete reliance, complete dependence upon God's power. See, the disciples at this point, they've misunderstood it. They, 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 they believe that they had been entrusted with God's full power to fight demons. They hadn't been. Right? They had been given authority, but the power to heal was still always belongs to God. The need for God's power was just as great as it had ever been. And by not praying, what they were doing was they were showing that they were believing in not the grace of God expressed through the power of God. What they were believing in was the authority they had been given, the teaching they had been received, and the experience of having done it before. Right? So, so think about this. Right? The teachers believed in religious moralism, but the disciples believed in this, what, is, what essentially amounts to self-reliant secularism. Right? Now, that's not what they would have said. They said, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not a secularist. I believe in God. I'm a follower of Jesus. But, but what their lack of prayer effectively showed was, yes, they were. Yes, they were. They were effectively acting as if they were a, 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 just an everyday secular person, well-intentioned, a well-intentioned secularist, right? Because that's what a well-intentioned secularist does. The, relig the religious moralist believes that the power of good is the way to healing, but, the, but when the well-intentioned secularist goes into the, into the, into the valley, to confront pain and to confront suffering and brokenness, what they believe in is the power of sort of credentialed expertise. Right? They, they believe in the, in the, in the power of, of experience. Have you done this before? But without the power of God harnessed and accessed through prayer, they fail. Now, that's the disciples, but think about this. Is that you? Right? If I'm honest, there's a lot more of this belief system in me then I'd, then I'd like to admit, and I'm, I'm the pastor, right? <laughs> you know, I'm preaching this, so I'm preaching this Sunday on this passage. 
And I find myself halfway through the week, already well into the study of the text, halfway the week, and I catch myself, before I even catch myself, and I realize I haven't prayed one time specifically that God would use powerfully this message in the lives of your hearts, in, in your lives and your hearts, right? That's terrible. I mean, I apologize. I'm not, so na- I'm not so naive as to, as to think that, that, that many of you aren't in the valley. If we're honest, we're all in the, we all live in the valley. Right? That's, where, that's where life is. We live in the midst of this, this chaos. But without, without prayer, without, without asking God to work powerfully through his word, what am I telling you? I'm telling you that I effectively believe that you should trust in not the power of God, but in the authority of my office, in the quality of my education, in my experience of having taught before. And that will not work. And I am sorry. You see, it, no, matter, no matter what you do, without prayer, begging God to use his power, your, your good intentions will fail. So the teachers of the law fail because they believe in the wrong thing. The disciples fail because they believe in the wrong thing. Now, does anyone believe rightly here? Let's finish up by looking at the Father. Because as soon as Jesus arrives, as soon as Jesus arrives and sort of sorts things out, he goes immediately into action. He asks that they bring the the boy to him. And right away, we we see how bad it is because the evil spirit possessing the boy throws him to the ground. And and Jesus addresses the Father with compassion. He looks at him and says, how long has he been like this? And then look at the interchange. The father says he's been like this since childhood. And then let's read again, starting at verse 22. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me come overcome my unbelief. Okay, now, we, start, we started with this, but let, let's, let's think about this. What happened here? The man seems to be making what, what appears to be just a very honest request. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Right? And it seems like Jesus is sort of correcting him for not using the right words. Right? It's like he's saying, excuse me here, but if? <laughs> do you not realize that you are speaking to the Son of God? Is that what you hear? It's kind of, right? You might, that's, that's kind of what it might sound like. But but that's not what Jesus is doing. See, Jesus' gentle correction about the man's choice of words is intended to highlight for everyone, for the teachers, for the disciples, for the man himself, what real belief looks like. It's intended to bring out of the man the most honest, the most authentic, the most genuine, the most accurate expression of a belief system that works. What does real faith looks like, look like. Look at the man's response. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It's incredibly humble, isn't it? Honest. The father isn't without guilt here. Jesus rightly corrects him. He was right to correct him. But his faith, this man's faith, is pointed in the right direction. It isn't the moralistic belief of the the teachers, and it's not the self-reliant belief of the the disciples. It's the belief of, of, of of repentant helplessness. That's what one of the commentators calls it, right? Through Jesus, we don't need perfect righteousness. This is what the commentator says. Just repentant helplessness to help us access the presence of God. 
This is the humility that the teachers lacked. Right? This is the very definition of prayer that the disciples forgot. Right? This is prayer. This is what it looks like. Coming to Jesus, humbly recognizing your weakness, but boldly seeking his power. Right? That's how the belief of the Father is expressed. Now, let's just pause for, for just a second here because what Jesus says in response, everything is possible for him who believes. What he says there, in that we might have maybe one of the most abused verses in the Bible. And it's particularly dangerous when you're in the valley right? because all kinds of people can come along and, 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 and say to you something, they can quote this verse, just pull it out of context, quote this verse and say, you know, the reason why you haven't really experienced healing is you haven't believed enough. If you just believed enough, if you just believed in the right way, then you would be healed or you would get that job or you'd find a child or find a husband or, or have children or, or whatever it might be. Right? And, there, and there's unfortunately lots of teachers out there who kind of, who kind of promote this. And he goes by different names, name it and claim it theology or health and wealth gospel, things like that. But the point, but see, it completely misses the point because, because the point of what Jesus is doing here is not to show that he's going to heal this man's son as soon as the man's faith is strong enough is to show that he's going to heal the man's son despite the fact that the man's faith is weak. You see, it's exactly the opposite. That's what right believing is, is, is all about. It doesn't mean that Jesus will do whatever we ask when we ask it in the right way. It means coming to Jesus humbly recognizing that he has absolute authority over everything and trusting that even when we don't understand what he's doing, that he's doing the right thing. See, Jesus is not like, for example, he's not like Google Maps. Right? One, of the, one of the most amazing advances in, in kind of efficiency that comes with, with smartphones and, and things like that is I can type into here any address, anywhere, and Google Maps can direct me there. I just push a button. But one of the things that I like to do, maybe you like to do this too, or maybe it just reveals something about me. One of the things I like to do is once Google Maps figures out a route, is I like to go some other way and listen as Google Maps adjusts itself. And you know what's interesting? It doesn't argue. Google doesn't argue. It's just, okay, you want to go this way? Let's go this way. If you want to go this way, I'll tell you how to get there through this route. See, and that's how we often think about God, isn't it? right? In t listening to us, taking, taking our, our, our direction. That's how we like our gods. We like, them, we like them like Google, right? They're there when we need them, right? They're available for immediate consultation. They're great sources of information. They give us direction when we're lost, but ultimately, they answer our questions, follow our commands, and adjust to our preferred route. But see, prayer is not a Google search. And Jesus is not a Google God. And yes, we come to him boldly, believing that he can do all things. That's what he's saying to this man. There is no if when it comes to God's power. But we come to him humbly, believing that he is God and we are not. That's the faith. That's the belief that this man is, is expressing. And the foundation for that, the foundation for that, that humble boldness is a confidence. It has to come from a confidence that no matter what we may not know, Jesus is unconditionally for us, right? Not because we're moral enough, 
Not because we follow the right program, not even because we believe perfectly, but because he has chosen to love us in the valley. Now, where does that confidence come from, that he loves us unconditionally, that he's going to rescue us? Well, it comes from the fact that he's been in the valley himself. He comes to the valley himself. That's what we see at the very beginning of chapter 9. He's up on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he comes into the valley because he's needed in the valley. One of the, the last, perhaps one of the most famous paintings of the Renaissance artist Raphael is the Transfiguration. It hangs in one of the Vatican galleries now. And it shows Jesus in all of his glory, with, with, with Moses and Elijah and, the, and Peter, James, and John, and they're watching, and Jesus is there in all in his glory. But in the foreground, at the bottom of the painting, is the valley. It's the demon-possessed man and his, or demon-possessed boy and, his, and, his, and his, his grieving father. It's the arguing disciples and the, and the teachers of the law. It's, it's beautiful, this, this striking contrast between these two scenes. And what the painting is saying is that Jesus has to come down because his people need help. See, our confidence comes from the fact that Jesus didn't stay in glory. He came down to walk in the valley with us. And then verses 30 to 32, Mark shows us how how Jesus takes this one step further. Look back at Mark chapter 9. This is what Mark records immediately after the incident with the uh, the demon-possessed boy. It actually relates an entirely separate but, but very related incident. Jesus and his disciples are on their, they're back on the road, and they're on their way to Jerusalem, and he's teaching them. And in verse 31, he says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Now, you see what that means for purposes of our discussion this morning? Jesus didn't stay on the mountain. Jesus entered into the valley, not just because of this one man and his son. He came back into the valley because he was on a journey to Jerusalem for me and for you. He was on a journey to Jerusalem where he was going to be betrayed and where he was going to be killed. Killed to take the justice that our moralism and our self-reliance and our faithlessness deserves. And then he rose. See, Jesus doesn't, doesn't stay in the valley. He rises. And that's, that's the source of our, of our confidence. Not simply that he came to the valley, not even, that he, not even simply that he came to the valley and died, but that he came into the valley, died, and then rose again. And when we believe in him, then neither will we. See, that's where the Christian belief is, is, is distinctive. Because it it offers both an accurate diagnosis of the valley. It explains for us perfectly why things in this world are the way they are. But it also offers the final solution to the valley. Right? And that's what, that's, what everyone, that's what everyone in their own belief system, that's what everyone needs to ask themselves about what they believe. We all believe in something, right? There's no, there's no doubt about that. We all believe in something. But in what or in whom are we believing? And in every system, you need to be able to answer that question. You need to be able to test it. How do, how do I explain the valley and how do I get out of it? The Christian belief says that the answer to both of those questions is a person. It's Jesus. And in that person is the only true, lasting hope that will sustain you in the valley to the very end and then lift you out of it. You know, interestingly, that TED Radio Hour show that I was telling you about, 
right, about belief and doubt, they actually began with a segment featuring Billy Graham, who did a TED Talk in 19, 1998. And it's very interesting to watch his entire talk. It's not, it's not a part of the program, but they only played excerpts of it, but you can find it online. This, this talk that Billy Graham gave in 1998, because, because TED Talks, sort of by their very nature, these talks, they're filled with all kinds of technology and, and, uh, and science types. Lots of people who are trying really hard to sort of find answers to, to questions, through systems and, and, and processes. They believe in, in science and technology. And, and yet, gently, but very directly, what Billy Graham, who was 80 at the time, asked this audience to consider was how their belief system addressed this problem of the valley. Now, he didn't use that word, but he asked them, to, how, does your, how does the belief system that we hold address this problem of death? Because he said that he stood far too many times at the deathbed of very famous people who wouldn't have considered just a short time before anything about death or the consequences of it. And yet at that moment, they realized that what they had believed in had no answer. You see, believing is inevitable. Whether we're conscious of it or not, we all believe in something. But what we believe, that's not a question that we can just brush off. Because the valley is too real for us to be able to do that. And the glory that's promised is so great that we can't just do that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful, grateful that you not only recognize the problem of the valley, but that you come into it to rescue us. Lord, give us, give us belief. We're, we're here, so in some sense we're acknowledging a belief in you, but Lord, help us in our, help us in our unbelief. And Lord, perhaps that's not even true for some who are here this morning. And maybe they're struggling to, to figure out what they, what they believe. But Lord, I pray that you would show them that belief is not in themselves, not in a system, not in some abstract concept like progress or science, but, but the real hope for their hearts, the real answer to their pain is in a person. It's in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.